The challenge that all retailers and brands face today is innovation. It's creating newness. It's creating an emotional tie to the brand or the store. I worked a number of years with Gap. I think Gap probably pound for pound, whether it's the Gap division, Banana Republic or Old Navy, they probably make some of the best quality product at the price there is. The question is, what is the emotional draw they're creating to pull me into the store? Because I could be pulled into another store. I could go to a Uniqlo or I could go to a Zara or an H&M. I need an emotional tie to a brand. So innovation and marketing. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast, where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your own inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today in the podcast is Ken Pilot. Ken is a seasoned retail executive and founder of Ken Pilot Ventures. With operating experience in various C-level roles at The Gap, J. Crew, Ralph Lauren, American Eagle, and ABC Carpet and Home, to name a few. He was also the co-founder and CEO of Robot Galaxy and has an advisory practice that focuses on advancing direct-to-consumer methodology through technology and use of space. We're going to get into it. And over the past seven years, Ken has invested and serves as an operating partner in various technology companies, primarily focusing on retail and e-com. And we're going to get into it. He has a wealth of information to share, a wealth of knowledge, and we're going to chop it up. Ken Pilot, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Adam. It's great to be here. Good to be on the other side of the mic. So to speak. It's fun. It's fun to be on the other side of the mic instead of asking all the all the questions here. And anybody who's watching uh, any of the clips or the video, Ken has a wonderful step and repeat behind him for his show, The Retail Pilot, which we will certainly talk about. But we're going to hit the rewind button and uh, play a little. This is this is your life, Ken Pilot, uh, on on this morning episode here. So as far back as I can see, you, you've been in, in in retail. What 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 got you there, right? Like, did you did you come out of school and like I want to work in retail? Like, how how does one get into the retail industry? You know, I was always an entrepreneur from as far back as I can remember. I was figuring out ways to put a few bucks in my pocket, going back to shoveling driveways, stringing tennis rackets, developing black and white film, whatever it took for me to do to make a few bucks. That was it. And um, that really led me on my journey through high school, college, picking up odd jobs. I played on the tennis team at Colgate and I actually sold shirts out of my room. There were a brand called Boast and it looked like a pot leaf on the shirt, but it's actually right. a Japanese maple leaf. And ah, I put the old confusion. Colgate over the leaf. And it was like, I was selling those like crazy. So that was sort of my first hand-to-hand combat with true retail. And you know, from there on, I just got into the, got into the channel. You got into it. Was that, was that your first role out of school, right into retail? My first job out of school was um, teaching tennis. I ran a tennis camp for about one year and then realized I probably needed an adult job and mm. ended up in the Macy's training program. It's interesting these, these, right, right. 
So these these large retailers, right? It didn't scare you off, did it? Now, you know, back then, the Macy's training program was sort of the Harvard of training programs. It was mm-hmm. a tough one to get into. So for, I think, $18,500, I decided, yeah, this is right for me. Um, and I jumped in and started my career in New York, working at Macy's Herald Square as a trainee. You know, it's so crazy. I have, I have a friend, Greg, um, if he's listening, Greg, Greg Kahn, shout out to you. Um, right out of school. And we're talking, when did I graduate? Mm, you know, 20, 20, 20 years ago. I can't believe I'm saying that at this point. That college is, I've been out of college longer than I was in college. That's an interesting inflection point. But Greg joined Macy's, went through the training program, and he's been there since. And he worked his way up and has a great career, benefits, and makes good money there. And it's just interesting when you look at people's career trajectories, how, how they get into it and how they stay in that, stay in that field. Um, we were doing our research, and one of the points that came out to me, and I think it really has to do with this entrepreneurship spirit that you have, is in all these organizations, Ken, you saw and observed things that weren't working from a technology, a logistics, and ops perspective. And you found ways to innovate. Were there times when that was met with resistance? How, how did you how did you manage that? Yeah, there were a few different points in my career that I went on maybe a bit of a tangent or took a different path within a company. You know, I sort of view myself as an entrepreneur because mm-hmm. I got to do entrepreneurial things inside of big companies, which is great because then you get to use their money to to try oh, yeah. out what it is that you want to experiment with. So probably the biggest example of that was the day I was told when I was working at Gap that you were going to run. Ken, you're going to run the Gap outlet business. And I was like, well, that's great, but there isn't one. And they said, exactly. Go build it. I'm like, wow. This I, I became an instant leper <clears throat> within mm-hmm. a fat company because you know we were all about full price sales. Right. But do you think they were trying they're trying to like like did, they, did you see it as they were trying to move you out to another division or did you see it as they recognized that you had this innate ability to create an event and they were fostering that? Like, how did, how did you take it back then early in your career? The answer to that is yes. <laughs> um, I, I felt both, both things, you know, it was, they were trying to leverage my ability to go build something and then also realize an opportunity out there that Gap wasn't addressing. You know, this goes back to God. Now I'll date myself, but probably 1994, 93, uh, when we started on the path of building Gap Outlet. And again, there was maybe one or two stores that were just poor performing Gap stores mm-hmm. that became an outlet because they just sold markdowns. But right. we weren't in the outlet business. We weren't in the outlet centers. We weren't going after it the way other companies like Ralph Lauren or Tommy Hilfiger were. Nike. Nike. And it's for any retailer that's in the outlet space, it's probably the most profitable division they have. Um, it is, it, it's a moneymaker. I mean, there's an optics to it. Correct me if I'm wrong too, because not everything, right? There's, there's loss leaders. Let's have a little lesson here for everybody. There's loss leaders when you're like, let's think about Nike. You think you're going to go in there and you're going to get a pair of Jordans for half price. We were out in the one near Hershey Park over the summer, and I'm like, that's a full-price J right there, but it's right next to some weird sneaker that no one would ever buy that's almost 70% off, right? So get you in the door with the loss leader and then get you on the upsell because you're already in there and you see something that you like. And then you're also moving distressed inventory, which otherwise would be, I don't know, destroyed, written off. I mean, t- tell us, let's, 
I can't believe I'm actually interested in this. T- tell us how the outlet business works. So the outlet business, anyone that does a good job in the outlet business isn't selling distressed inventory. Okay. They're making inventory for their stores, just like mm-hmm. any division or brand makes inventory for their stores. You can't run a business and be successful on mistakes alone. So the power of an outlet division is you have excellent hindsight. You know what worked in the past. And all you got to do is repeat that and provide it to the customer at 30% less. Now, when you're providing goods at 30 or 40% less, if you look at some of these markups today, that still enables you to actually have a maintained margin of over 50%, which is really good. And then when you look at the further economics of the outlet, which is really the real estate cost, it's so much less. That's where the profitability comes into play. So when I was at Gap, we started with you know two stores that were poor performing inner city stores. We ended up closing those. And then over the next 36 months, opened up 100 Gap outlet locations and delivered over half a billion in revenue. Um, so that was... Uh, that was the tangent. That was something that wasn't there that I was asked to address. And at the time when I was asked, I wasn't the most excited guy because why me? It was really, why me? Why am I being asked to run an outlet business when we're in the fashion business? Was there a, a kind of inflection point, critical moment when you were in this outlet business? You're like, you know what? They, they chose me for a reason and I'm kicking ass here. I see the opportunity. And now it's kind of like, let the numbers talk and see what Ken has done here. It, it happened. I was recognized and I was then promoted to run the Gap International business. And then from that, I went on to run the Gap brand global business. Um, so it certainly helped move my career forward. Something at the time when I was selected again, I, I didn't see it really as a net positive, but it became probably one of the most pivotal points in my career. So you, you worked your way up the ladder at the gap. What was one of those lessons learned the hard way from a managerial leadership position? You were, you were building teams, you were hiring people, you were interviewing. So as far as team building, what was one of those hard lessons learned? Maybe something you thought was the right way to do it when building a team that, that maybe backfired or didn't your hypothesis oh, didn't work out on hire? Easy, easy question to answer, Adam. As I, I just mentioned, I went from running Gap International to Gap Global. So we had stores in five countries and then excluding the U.S. And then I was brought in to run the U.S. as well. And I thought, and I was mistaken, that every buyer could manage six countries versus trying to keep it, keep the buying localized or have teams that were more focused on areas of the world. So I moved the organization to that model. And that was not a successful move. It overwhelmed people. And frankly, the importance of the US business far outweighed what was happening in Germany or France, which were small businesses. I mean, the size of the business in Germany at the time was smaller than the business that we were doing at 34th and Broadway, which was our number one gap store. But so you think about it, you can go to your gap store on 34th and Broadway see more volume than you would in all of Germany and not have to eat what I consider to be some challenging food in Germany. I mean, if you've ever been to Germany, the day starts with breakfast meats. I mean, it's, it's, it's a heavy, it's a, it's a heavy, it's a heavy meal. I've, I've had the opportunity. Uh, usually it's absorbing the night before, but if you're there working on a day-to-day basis instead of partying or tourism, it's a little bit different. 
I mean, I love the pretzels. I get that. That works. But the breakfast meat thing is rough. And, uh, you know, anyway, so that was a move that I regret making a, a lesson learned. I moved too quickly, too fast, uh, which is something that I, I find myself doing from time to time. And you need to course correct. Well, that's an interesting one, and and I want I don't want to jump too far ahead, but as a as a as a seasoned investor and 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 people leader too, balancing speed to respond to market conditions to take advantage of an opportunity versus slowing down to ensure you're doing things the right way. How do you how do you, how do you find that balance? It's tough. I do like to draft and craft, draft um, and craft, I, draft mm-hmm. and craft. Uh, uh, <laughs> it, it's the balance is always difficult because m- taking too long to make a decision if it is right can also be a failure trying obviously to do something without enough information can be a failure identifying the balance is not so easy but i definitely err to the i'd rather make a mistake more quickly and course correct and take too yeah, long well wasn't the right move. Um, Easier when you're working alone, much more difficult when you have a bigger team, because the impact on me to course correct is much easier. The impact on the team, much more difficult. Right. And you're, and you're absorbing more more of it when you have a, when you have a bigger team as, as a leader. So I want to talk a little bit about getting back on track with the the career trajectory, leaving the retail world. um, Keep me straight here, launching Robot Galaxy. I think that was 2007. What was the impetus behind it? What was the vision? So with a partner, Oliver Mitchell, whose concept it was, we got together and fleshed out this concept. And it was at a very high level, build a bear for boys. Right. So it was retail, entertainment, online, 2007, things were pumping up. How do you bring it together? Yeah. So So build build a bear for boys or men or adult men? Boys. No, boys. This is definitely, was definitely targeting kids space. Something for the dad and lad, if you will, to do dad in the store uh, versus the mom and daughter, yeah. which clearly much more of a Build-A-Bear experience. So we put together the concept. We hired a great guy for store design, and we built the stores to look like a spaceship. And the kids would come into the store. Mm-hmm. We had five characters, which all came to life in our Robot Galaxy comic book. The kids would build their robot. They'd bring them to the seventh ring of Saturn, which was this phenomenal centerpiece in the store where their robot would actually go up into this orb, Mm. light up a loud sound. And then the kid would take the robot back on Earth, plug it into a computer, put his name in, add a few other words. Personalizations, yep. Yeah. Then he could play with the robot at home online, an MMOG, I think mass mass online game, play other kids who had robots. So we had comic books covered. We had a store experience covered. You had the narrative, you had everything going. Yeah. The only thing that we covered was the fact that the world went to shit in 2008 when we hit the recession. At this point, we had already opened up two locations, one in Paramus, one in Freehold, New Jersey. And we had just opened up our third location inside of inside of Times Square, Toys R Us, up on the second floor, overseeing the store. So we had great real estate and we were killing it. Uh, And then 
basically got killed by the economy. Because people stopped shopping as much. Yeah, it was it was a bigger mm-hmm. price point and it, um, it it business just slowed and it got tough. We had a term sheet from Disney and we and oh, wow. there was no good to be had. Jeez. How how did how did that did you take that failure personally or were you able to really kind of attribute that to the economy and move forward? Like, I, is it, I, like let's pause it. Like for, for an entrepreneur, like how do you separate taking like you put your like I I hear it in the way you even talk about something from that long ago, two thousand seven was that long ago. Um, this is your baby. You had a concept. You built it. You're excited. This was like, and then it went to shit. Like, how does that sit with you? How do you process it? Well, you take it very, I took it very personally. You know, first of all, when you, as you launch these businesses, whether it's a tech platform or it's a a new clothing company, when it's a startup, you're out there raising money, Mm -hmm. raising money from friends and family, uh, along with your own money. So, you know, we lost, we lost money. I lost friends' money, family money, my money. So yeah, that, that didn't feel good. Uh, it was a, a great experience. It was a lot of fun building the concept. Sure. My partner, Oliver, who is also, he is a creative genius and he's really into robots. He's still out there today playing in the robot space, um, although the, the real robotic space, not the toy space. So we, we really put all that we could into this and it's too bad there wasn't an exit. Um, but Hey, it happens. Do you think there's still something there that could be reinvented? We were talking before about the metaverse web three technology out there. Um, I mean, for me personally, I think gaming is really going to be the, the, the killer app to mass adoption in, in web three. Is there a second life or rebirth for robot galaxy? Is there think about augmented reality and interactive retail shopping experiences. Like, let's dig into that. Is there still something there? Is there still a kernel of idea that could be blown out? Explored? You you look at it today where robotics is today and there are other robotics concepts out there. You know, it's just a matter of the space you want to cover. Is it a, is it a toy or is it part of science? And there are STEM programs out there today where you get in and you're learning about robotics. There's programming, there's AI, there's so much Mm -hmm. more that's happening. It just depends how it gets packaged. But the galaxy of robots is huge. I mean, I think about this, and and this is where my head is spinning there, Ken, yeah. Um, My daughter, 11 years old, she's into fashion. She loves shopping online. She knows her style. She knows her brand. She also does STEM, STEAM, STEM, S-T-A-A-M. It's STEAM, STEM. Um, she's doing robotics. She's playing in the metaverse as far as like Fortnite and Roblox and creating yeah. TikTok videos. I, I think that there's still a, a very ripe idea there for these young girls and boys, teens, preteens, to have this interactive experience. Like how do you, how do you bring it all together in the metaverse and Create these. I mean, we we talk about the metaverse and 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 this land grab early on. We're still trying to figure it out, but all these brands were looking to buy virtual real estate next to Snoop Dogg, and and they bought them. Right? They bought these virtual plots. So I I think there's a lot there, and I am optimistic. I still think we're in the first at bat of the first inning here. Yeah. But if you infuse this kind of early thinking and innovation and take it to where we are now, I mean, there there's some meat on the bone, Ken. There is. If you started, if you again started with a store experience and know that it starts, you know, mm-hmm. on earth and then evolves Fidgetal. to the metaverse. There's a path there. There's a way to go. It's almost as if you were to take this robot or whatever it is you built and where else would it live? 
because now you actually have created something that's tactile and allowing it to live anywhere. So maybe there's the concept. Or maybe it's like you're able to kind of program your own virtual shopper, right? Like if you're able to, like it, take, it takes your AI, pre- your preferences and it's scouring. I mean, they have them out there, right? These bots yeah. that kind of know your preferences and they're, they're self-serving. Hey, everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. I want to talk about these legacy retailers that have, have gone out the door. Like we talk about Sears, JCPenney and all that. Like what causes some of them to survive and some of them to, to, to fall away? Like, is it lack of innovation? Is it, is it trends? I mean, if we talked 20 years ago and you told me that JCPenney or well, longer than that, like Pennies and Macy's would be where they are now from a business perspective, would you, would you have predicted it? You know, there's still, even when you, you look at a Macy's, you know, there's still a dominant player in the, in the retail space. There's a lot of stores. Well, they've also have the home division, the outdoor stuff, their furniture. There's still, there's still a large player. The challenge that all retailers and brands face today, and you mentioned it, is innovation. It's creating newness. It's creating an emotional tie to the brand or the store. You know, I worked a number of years with Gap. I think Gap, probably pound for pound, whether it's the Gap division, Banana Republic, or Old Navy, they probably make some of the best quality product at the price there is. The question is, what is the emotional draw Mm. they're creating to pull me into the store? Because I could be pulled into another store. I could go to a Uniqlo, or I could go to a Zara, or an H&M. I need an emotional tie to a brand. So innovation and marketing. How is, how is, I mean, how has Gap done it over the years? I mean, Gap, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit biased. I mean, my, my tastes have changed. I started the Gap, but then I went Banana Republic and they're progressing you through your age and your demographic. And, and sure. I mean, I dress my five-year-old in Gap stuff. It also helps that there's a Gap on the corner in Long Island here in Merrick that, that makes it. And that store has been there for, you probably know longer than me, that, that location, I think has been there for 30 plus years, if I had to guess. One of the, one of the, one of the better locations they've had. Yeah. If believe me, if it wasn't a good location, it wouldn't be on the earth anymore. It'd be in the metaverse, actually yeah. it'd be in the graveyard. It, it, it would be, but that's, but that's these, these legacy brands. What's, what's a bold, let's make a, let's make a bold prediction here. What's, what's going to be the, the, the next latest and greatest retailer? What's, what's the next innovation? What's happening out there? You know, it's so much right now is happening around footwear that when I look at the landscape, that's it, sort of where the energy is, whether it's an on running or a Hoka, uh, or even like what Skechers is doing with the slip in, you know, there's they pivoted. a big, big push in comfort. And, and you, you look at Hoka, which really my started. Br- my brother a, loves them. My brother swears by them. They're great. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're, they have a, look, a specific look. Let's leave it there. Right. And if my good friend Dave Powers is listening, this is the CEO of Deckers. We had a great, we had a great podcast together. It's an acquired taste for the style of sneaker they make. But from a comfort perspective, they're killing it. And then also from a, a true 
authentic perspective in terms of it being used for sport, they're killing mm-hmm. it. And then you look at someone like on cloud, like those guys are also killing it. Same thing, comfort. Comfort's becoming more and more important. People, are, everybody's into their steps. How far am I walking every day? We're looking at our phones, our watches. And then the other thing too about the sneaker business, it's one way that everybody kind of shows a brand. Loyalty, affinity. You know, it's a brand. Look down got Nike, they got Brooks, they've got Saucony, that whatever it is, because a lot of our clothing is brandless. I mean, there are people out there that are wearing high-end design that want to show it's Prada or Louis Vuitton, right. whatever it is, but a lot of people don't. More people don't because they can't afford it. But the sneaker kind of says, oh, it's, he's a Nike right. guy, an Adidas guy. I mean, Jordan. So there's a bit of self-branding around I mean, that, that right? sneakers are where it's at. I mean, look what I mean, we were talking before, what Nike has done with Artifact, like taking it to the next level of customization and, and owning a digital and creating your, your own customized sneaker in the metaverse and then having it delivered to you a month later, right? Like people are owning, owning it. Talk about brand yeah. affinity. If I could design my own Nike and have it, I'm sticking with that and I'm showing it off. Yeah, and Nike's been doing that for a while. So I, I, I love what's happening in footwear. Um, I think that's probably one of the stronger businesses today. And then there are smaller brands out there that are just very focused on their lane that do a great job around keeping that brand DNA intact. That's the hardest part. How do I continue to make my brand stand for what it is that helped build this brand? You know, I I just met with uh, the Veronica's, Veronica Beer. I don't know if you know, but they're two sisters. Both they're both named Veronica. Wait, wait, and the both sisters named are named Veronica, Beard, and they've done. Had, yes, and they're both. How does that? Are they, are they twins? No, no, they're oh, they're sister-in-law. Okay, so, so they're not. They, they married okay. brothers. Thank you. I was like, if, if I name both brothers. my kids Nina, both my kids Oliver, it'd be a weird thing. Yeah, no, no. But try doing a podcast with Veronica and Veronica. And is that even a nickname for Veronica? Is there a V? Like, is there there like, like, like Ken, Kenny, Kenneth, Kent? Like, there's multiple versions of like Adam, Ad, Ads, like Veronica. Like, is there? No, you just hit, you hit, you just hit the, uh, you hit the initials. That's all. VSM, it's, it's whatever. So, but, but we talked about how they've done a great job building their brand, but keeping their DNA intact. And, and you can go back to other brands that are like that as well. I mean, even the designer brands, high end, I mean, their ability, Chanel, mm-hmm. to keep its brand intact, to always be on brand. And that's, that's critical to building brands. That's the most important thing. And keeping it new and fresh. Brands that fail to so innovate, they die. let's talk about that for a moment. And the one that's really stood out to me lately is Crocs. And, and, and I see it from, I put my marketing hat on, and I see it from a brand partnership perspective, what they've done. And keep me straight on the history here. I mean, Crocs kind of faded out for a bit. You know, they were kind of known as the, the chef shoe. And then all of a sudden they came back in fashion a couple of years ago and they're the hottest thing. And they innovated in a couple of different ways. They innovated the product itself. They have now a, a, a Croc that's lined that my kids have for the winter, which is great. My little dude goes to jujitsu and he just throws those Crocs on with the liners. I don't even have to worry about it. They're awesome. And then the gibbets. This fad with the gibbets, the, the collectible element. And you have these kids, you have brands that are creating, you have partnerships. We talk about Gary V, my, my former boss, his V Friends brand. They just launched gibbets for that. Everyone and their mother has gibbets. You go on Amazon, gibbets, collecting, trading. That creates stickiness. Let's use that word in retail and in shopping stickiness, which is brand affinity and keeping you with the product there. 
what's your thoughts on the on the on the Croc story, Ken? I think you nailed it. I, they they were hot and then they were not, and they're hot again. It, but it does show you when you step back that you can go from hot to mm-hmm. not to hot. So even going back to Gap, you know, is there? And I guess we've all been waiting for the resurgence or the rebirth of Gap, and maybe you know, they now have a new CEO. Um, we'll see if he's the guy that can that can make it happen. But I think. With big brands like that, mm-hmm. often partnerships can be helpful. That said, clearly their partnership about with, with Yeezy that was, was a bit challenging. Um, <clears throat> but again, following on that, they just did a partnership with Love Shack Fancy that was extremely Collapse. successful. So that drove business. The collaboration drove volume. It created awareness and it made them relevant. Now, how do you take that energy? And make it bigger and, and make it more a part of the brand to drive the brand forward. And they got to figure it out. But it just shows you that the brand, they created an emotional connection with the, for the product that drove customers to the store. So was Ken, the launch of Ken Pilot Ventures, was just a logical, you know, you're, you're moving into this phase of your career, your, your industry expertise to put yourself in this position to incubate, to consult and to build. Talk to us about the the birth and the vision of Ken Pilot Ventures. It was sort of towards the end of my involvement running businesses when I was at ABC Home. Great I store, started to get involved with technology. Uh, yeah, we went was, there in the city a, to find things that we store. liked and then bought yeah, them elsewhere for less. Inspiration. <laughs> right. That's That was... It was also, here, was a here's a little secret tip for me. That was one of my secret bathrooms in New York City. I knew exactly where to go. There was one downstairs and there was a, one on the I think, third floor, if I remember correctly. I, yeah, I was like, I'm walking in there. I don't look like I'm homeless yep. off the streets. I know it's going to be a clean bathroom. So there's a sec- positive secret New York City bathrooms. Also some hotels, but I'll leave it. Third floor bathrooms gone, by the way, because they're just down to one floor. I've just not FYI, been there nice. I haven't been there recently. <laughs> Yeah. So um, I started a, a friend of mine, Ken Seif, got me to invest in a fund called Beanstalk Ventures. And within the fund, there were a bunch of retail technology platforms. And in fairness, I was never that excited about technology throughout my career. If I got pulled into a tech meeting, that had to mean that the our cash registers in the store were no longer <laughs> working. We couldn't take money How from customers. How do we get money? Otherwise, I didn't need to be in the yeah. So I got pulled into this space, started to meet with these different platforms and realized, God, if I had had one of those platforms when I was running this or doing that, I wouldn't have made the following mistakes. So I began to identify technology that would have helped me correct all the mistakes I made while I was running different businesses. And today I'm probably up to, I don't know, 10 to 12 different platforms that I have investments in. And I work with the founders, um, talk to them about what I think is important, but most, probably most importantly, help them see the space from the outside in versus the way they view it, which is really from the the blind spots. You're taking up to 30,000 foot view. You're infusing your, your industry experience. Um, when you're evaluating a potential investment, how do you, how do you balance investing in the horse versus the jockey? It, it is a balance and you're looking at first, do I like the jockey? Because <laughs> if I don't like the jockey, 
I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna care about his horse. Uh, because ultimately you're working with, you're working with the leader throughout the process. So you, you have to have a connection with the person, feel that their horse, their product is really addressing a problem. How it's addressing the problem, how then I would take it back and apply it to the retail space, how I would actually tell a CEO about what it is that they do versus the way they tell someone what they do. And they're generally quite different. Um, just take a look at any any vendor's website and you'll be somewhat perplexed as to what they do versus what I can tell you they would that they do. Um, so it's understanding what they do, the problem that they're solving and the team that they're building and who they're doing it for if it's later stage and the successes and the success they're seeing along with the business model. So there are a number of things to consider and it all depends on what stage you're jumping in. You know, typically now I'd like to get in at a stage where a platform has at least mm. one customer. Very difficult to do purely startup right. where there are no customers because you'll hear more often than not, hey, come back right. to me so when you're not you at the MVP level. Right? You're not at the MVP level. You want, to, you want to see it as an actual in market or at least like getting there, beta testing. So you, want, you want to see yes. it. How, how, how do you, how do you, What's the steps when you when you realize that you maybe you need you made a wrong decision and you need to punch out? Have you done that? You know, it yeah, it's you, either right. that or they get punched out. Not by me, yeah. but the market drops them. I've had um, I've, I've had two platforms that just fail to cross the finish line or stay in the race. I should say. I, I got a number mm. of guys out there in the race. I'd like if you I'm guys to cross the finish line. That would be nice and. I, good. Um, but I've had some partial exits along the way, which has been exciting. But sometimes yet yeah, you realize, hey, this isn't right for me. Uh, I'm not, I can't be helpful to you. And I'll just, I step back from my involvement. Yeah, in it's, a, it's a tough it one. So let's, let's pivot and let's talk about this podcast that I see behind you 12 times behind me. It's, I'm just guessing how many. Um, the Retail Pilot, <laughs> what was your impetus for launching a podcast? You know, fortunately for me, I've I've kept good relationships. I've made a lot of friends over my time in retail, uh, a number of CEOs that I keep in contact with. And I thought it'd be just a great way to keep my head in the game, keep the conversations going and share some what I think are valuable lessons with those who want to understand what the journeys are like for CEOs of different brands and different retailers out there. So pull that all together. And it's a great way for me to be connected to the space I love, I love which it. is retail. We were talking offline before about my podcast journey and what did, what did, what did you learn about yourself a couple of shows in, right? Cause people go into podcasting and you're, you're, somewhat of a public figure, you're an accomplished uh, people leader, you've led organizations. So I assume you're pretty comfortable being on the, on the, on the front facing side of marketing and communications, but podcasts, these are work, man. And they, and they take practice and reps. What, what, what is something that you learned about yourself through the podcast that you needed to maybe adjust to make the show better, to make yourself a better host? Probably the most important thing was phrasing mm -hmm. the questions. You know, how do you put it out there so that you can get the best response, be concise? So 
asking the questions, finding points of interest that were just a little bit maybe off the beaten track that you didn't know. Um, and then also being able to go deep with whoever I'm talking to about what they're experiencing or what they experienced. I mean, I've had conversations with Andy Dunn, who who battles with bipolar disorder, or you know, Steve Madden and I talked about jail wow. time. So he went into it. Um, you know, Mark Metric. Yeah, Mark Metric, who's the CEO of Saks. You know, he had he was challenged with alcoholism and how he overcame it. So finding some personal stories and how they dealt with those challenges. You know, I thought that was part of having to dig mm -hmm. in and do your research so that you came prepared to the podcast and could ask questions that people would I mean, really that's really what it's all about. In. And I always say when I coach other podcasters, I go, if you're not interested as a host, the audience is going to hear it. They're going to hear that you're bored. They're going to hear that you're not yeah. into it. And I, and I think that's a sign of a good, listen, not everybody is meant to be a podcast host. You, you may think it, maybe your company is pu putting down a, an initiative and saying, hey, let's give it a shot and try it. But if you're not feeling it and you're not, and it takes reps too, but if you're not feeling it, you're going to hear it on the, on the other side. And it's about being inquisitive. My, my big aha moment was about 25, 30 episodes in and somebody that I trust, they said, Adam, I'm listening to your show. It's, it's, it's good. You're getting there. But I could hear you thinking about the next question. You're cutting the guest off. You're jumping ahead. I was like, oh shit, I need, I need to just pause and listen. And it's just, you said before, now I'm able to hear things and take that right turn, that left turn, go down a rabbit hole. And there's certain guests that I have on that are promoting a book, they're promoting something and they have their talking points and they're going to try to jam those down your throat. So if you could find a way to find those interesting intersection points and bring out topics that they maybe have not discussed and maybe are deeply personal, controversial, whichever way you want to go, that's what makes for an exciting show. Now. On the surface, I think if I just look at your show, I think that's ah, kind of niche. Why do I need to get into that? But the word leaders in there and legends, that's what's going to excite me. I want to hear about how they, how they got there. What did they learn? And then you're also infusing this incredible industry knowledge where you're going to get into the trenches, right? You may bring really industry-specific yeah. things up that will speak to folks that are in the retail industry and then folks who just love to hear about how leaders got there. So um, what's, what's, what's been like this challenge for you? Where do you want to take the show? What's, what's the vision? I think in addition to leaders and legends, you know, there's also an opportunity and something I'll look to pivot to or add to next year around tech talk. And that's more about the technology that's behind mm -hmm. retail that's helping evolve the space. And that'll be very focused on specific areas like and specific opportunities. So I see expanding it there. I'm also going to be hosting a conference in January, uh, a tech summit, if you will. Uh, so that's something that has really evolved from this. But Please. I want to go back to something that you just said, because I think you made a really important point, one of your key learnings, which I would add has been one of my key learnings, which is stop waiting to answer and be ready to listen or ask. And, you know, we go in, as you know, we go into these podcasts with a bit of a game plan. But your ability or my ability to call an audible and go in a different direction because, wow, hold on. This, mm -hmm. I didn't know what they just said was going to be said. I find it really interesting. I'm going to spend some time there versus pivoting to my next question. 
because that of could course. be the most interesting part of the process, which is something you never expected. And then it becomes I, a gem. Do that again. And that is the key. That is it. That is love that. That is a key. I'll, I'll show you this bad boy afterwards when we when we sign off here. But that, but that's, but that's a key. To, that's a key to podcasting, right? And the more I listen to shows, it's inquisitive, being curious, going down those rabbit holes. My, with the help of my show producer Chris, who, who I absolutely adore, um, we do a lot of prep for the, for each and every episode. I maybe get to half the questions and flow I want to get to, but I have them all there. So it's exactly like a, like a football game. I have all my plates. I'm, I'm standing there with that giant yeah. laminated card covering my face yeah. like this, so you can't even see it. But I got it in here and I'm listening to the, the coordinators <laughs> and we're calling audibles. We're calling plays. I'm looking at the defense, right? I'm looking at the offense. We're switching it up. And that's what makes a great show. So let's, let's, let's bring it home here. Ken, Ken, in your opinion, in your professional and personal experience, who is the, what is the greatest retailer of all time and why? The what? holy grail, the holy, there, the holy grail. I've had the, I've had the good fortune of working with a few the first you have to you have to give a shout out to mickey drexler i mean this guy kind of wrote wrote one of the books if not the book he wrote one of the books uh, a true creative force a passionate leader uh, and what very brand is that product centric could and well, mickey started his career he was with bloomingdale's and then ann taylor ran gap uh was it j crew he actually, he took my job at J. Crew. I was there for five months. He said, Ken, see ya. Um, actually, he did. not I, I said, you do it. I'm out. Um, but Mickey was, he was amazing. And now he's, he's the chairman of Alex Mill, his son's company. But a true product leader, a true passionate retailer. Um, Roger Farah, who was the COO at Ralph Lauren, uh, another amazing leader. He wasn't the CEO, Ralph was, but Roger, for all intent and purposes, ran the company. An amazing mm -hmm. balance of left and right, of left and right brain. I, I true respect for what he was able to do as a visionary, as a leader, someone so smart, but but also got the creative part as well. It's hard to find people that can understand the importance of mm -hmm. finance and IT, as well as the need to have creative and design and a softer, the softer side of the business. Um, Lou Frankfurt, another legend in the space. He was the CEO mm -hmm. of Coach. I mean, he did an amazing job taking that brand from what it was to really. They also have a good outlet business today. Too, Coach. So those are. <laughs> Coach has a great outlet business, and, and yeah. listen, you know, Lou really understood the value of being multi-channel and how and how well you can serve that channel and still strengthen the brand. So those are few. I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but those are some of the legends uh, in the space that I think that have done. And, and Terry Lundgren um, did an amazing job building the department store business. And he was at Macy's for a number of years as CEO there. And in fact, I think I have dropping Terry's podcast mm -hmm. uh, next week on my well, which will right. be at a different time. Than it this be it's a little we'll back to the future on this show sometimes, right? We, we, we have to frame it up here. Yeah. So I, 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 I wasn't going to touch on it. And I was really thinking this whole show of how I wanted to get to it. And I'm going to kind of position it this way. In this current political global climate where the world is going to shit, how can and should companies ba balance you know, corporate responsibility 
and doing what's right, but also being mindful of polarizing audiences and, and at times having to stay neutral, at times deciding that they shouldn't stay neutral at a high level without sides or putting us in a, putting you in a corner here. How do you balance it at that high corporate level? Yeah. Listen, if I were, if I had to put out a statement for a public company, you can start at a level where if you can't agree with what I'm about to say, then maybe that's, that's okay <laughs> to lose that, that group of customers. And, and what I would say is the following. I don't think any company, public or private, should support, align, or sponsor terrorist organizations like Hamas or support hatred such as anti-Semitism. And for I, me, that's I a mean, hard stop. After that, I think that companies, countries have a, a need to be humanitarian and try to support people who are in need around the Amen. world. It should, it should be that simple. It should be good and evil, should have a clear line, but unfortunately in this world with social media and propaganda and media agendas, it, it's just not. So I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna put a pin in that conversation here because we could have a whole entire episode about that. And um, I mean, depends how I get up in the morning. If I wanna go down that route, if I feel it, or if I just want to focus on things that I could control, my family, my friends, health, wellness, happiness, you know, the things that I can control um, versus things that are, we could support, we could help, but they're, they're a touch out of it. So Ken, let's, um, let's bring it home here. And I ask all my guests this question in over 305 episodes, episode 305 here. Um, it's amazing to see this collection of answers. So Ken, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you have received that you take action on daily? This could be a mantra, something you wake up saying that gets you going in the day, something that has resonated that keeps you locked in, focused. This is called the air cover portion of a podcast host when we have air cover to allow the yeah, guest to... Yeah. <laughs> in, enjoy what you do. Find humor in what's around you and try and stay positive. That is sound advice. And last but not least, you look back on your, your, your life and your career and there were those tough moments, those tough moments we had to dig down deep and come out of the trenches personally, professionally, build a brand back up, build a business, build a personal, professional relationship back up. And you had to harness that inner tenacity to drive you forward. In the same breath, you sit here with gratitude, appreciation for this life, this business, this mission that you're on, that you've created. What keeps you focused? What is your beacon? Ken Pilot, what is your North Star in life? Honesty. Keeping it real. I, I try and be as truthful, as honest, and transparent as possible, regardless of the blowback that potentially can happen because of that. Amen. And I agree with you on that. I usually don't comment on someone's North Star, but like if you, if you keep it real and be your true self, 
nothing to defend. This is who I am. This is what I'm saying. This is what I believe in. And, and be solid as a rock. Ken, I want to I thank you so much for joining me. It's been a fantastic conversation. Um, any final words, thoughts? No, Adam, I, I appreciate the opportunity to share where I've been, what I've done, and hopefully this can, um, can really serve to replace Ambien for any of your <laughs> listeners who have a tough time sleeping. I can roll this Wake one up. out there right about 1030. Well, generally, my wife will listen to my podcast right about that time. Nah, that's a good so one. Put her to sleep. This is a good um, one. Ken, anyway. thank you so much for joining me, everyone. You can find out more at KenPilotVentures.com. Check out the podcast, The Retail Pilot. You can find it where all great podcasts live. Uh, in your ears, in your car, wherever you are. Remember everyone listening out there, uh, if this show resonated, leave a review rating. It goes a long way. You know where to find out more, thepodcast.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. I'm going to do something different today. If you want to reach out to me and tell me your thoughts, email me, adam at nhptalentgroup.com. I'd love to hear your feedback, your thoughts. Do not pitch me or sell me anything that I don't need. I hate throwing it out there, but you can find my email address. Uh, remember, uh, look out for one another, be good to yourself, be better to others, and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search the podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.